welcome to this episode of Change Voices, the podcast where we explore the challenges, successes, and lessons of leadership through the experience of women leaders across Africa and beyond. I'm your host, Paula Frey. In this session, we're going to explore issues of access to information and technology, information distribution and equality, and whistleblowing and even artificial intelligence in the global south. Our guest today, Gabriela Rosano, is the executive director of Open Up, a civic tech lab based in Cape Town. She is a senior Atlantic fellow for social and economic equity and has many awards and recognition. Gabriela has contributed to the drafting of several regional instruments, such as the African Model Law on Access to Information, the African Declaration on Internet Rights and Freedoms, and the African Union Draft Policy Framework. So welcome, Gabriela. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So, Gabriela, you've been described as an evangelist for openness. What set you on that path? Um, you know, I think some of it is just inevitable. It's a personality fit that, uh, that's been a long time coming. Um, I was When I was very small, I was quite an odd child. Um, my best friend when I was about 10 was my 60-year-old neighbor. I'd go over and uh, she made me tea. And then I had a friend who was like a 70-year-old man who ran an antique store. And I think a gift for me has always been like naturally being drawn to outcasts or outliers and, you know, people on the outside. And I think that, um, you know, it's those outsiders who will change the world. So, I've been very fortunate to be invited into those spaces and I've always really enjoyed it. And I think that's, I kind of think that that's what a lot of has, this is, you know, a lot of my life, which is, I have a very fortunate, interesting, interesting life, you know, exploring technology and transparency and openness and AI. And then at the same time, you know, public administration and all these amazing things that can coalesce so nicely. And, part of that's curiosity and part of it's just being constantly attracted to you know all these new different kinds of people mm. um yeah so it's so quite interesting right because when I was looking at at your work and and, and what you've been doing it's really an intersection between active citizenship or, yeah. or, or, or encouraging active citizenship through technology um how did those two come together well, so I, I initially, so I did a law degree. I worked in uh, studied to become a lawyer, almost ironically, I think, considering my school tried to expel me several times <laughs> <laughs> or, or being, as they described it, generally disruptive um, and not as insulting as I think they had intended it to be. But I went into law and then I went to the constitutional court which was amazing. And I think when you deal with law at that kind of level, you, you're ruined for legal practice. <laughs> and then I sort of went into the activist space, originally starting out at a South African history archive, so doing like transparency work, then going to the Open Democracy Advice Centre, where, where I worked for a number of years and eventually took over and eventually shut it down. But that's another traumatising story. <laughs> I met someone called Adi Yel um, in, I think we've been in 2012. So he's a data scientist and technologist. We met each other at our function. And I think it was one of the first times that I'm, even though I came from the law side, um, and even though he came from the technical side, you know, we both very much had a shared vision of how 
how instrumental data and technology can be, um, but also how limited it can be as well. Um, that, you know, the real things that make good change are people um, mm -hmm. and, and how technology is often just poorly positioned in this whole space to do what it could do, um, which is further human well-being, you know. And so that's when we started, um, eventually started Open Up Together. Mm. So I can, I, yeah, yeah. can I stop you there? So when the, when the two of you came together, what did you think technology could be? What was your vision? You know, originally we, like, because I was quite involved in that stage in the more traditional sort of civil society um, kinds of groups, you know, you, still, you saw a lot of people attempting to do technology projects um, and really, you know, having to hire like what they essentially envisioned as an IT guy and, you know, building this thing because a funder wanted them to build this thing and then being surprised that it didn't go anywhere, you know. Um, and I think there, originally we started an open data working group because both of us are quite obsessed with open data because, you know, data and information and power um, are intrinsically uh, linked. So that was kind of the thing. But at the same time, we saw this other gap, which was like probably one of the greatest things about technology, one of the greatest things about people who work in tech is how they think. Mm -hmm. and the ability how innovation is absolutely inspirational um, but it's a way of thinking it's not a thing you know mm -hmm. and how that innovation thinking was actually something that could really reform civil society but not mm -hmm. just civil society really reform governments so we frequently work with government departments building technology with them and i think part of what we offer is not just this thing but this way of thinking about the world which is that, you know, problems don't stay the same, that the solution's not one thing. You have to be agile. This has to be developed continuously. You have to change your mind. You have to be okay with failing things. You know, you have to do them quickly. Um, and, you know, Facebook has a motto, a terrible motto called, um, uh, what, what was it? Fail fast, move fast and break things which pretty much tells you uh, why, why the world's in the state it is. Uh, we have a similar philosophy, but which is move fast and fix things, you know, and you often figure out best how to fix things by failing. You know, I think that's true personally and technically. So, so Gabriella, when you met Adil, you came from a legal background, right, and, and traditional civil society. What was the shift you had to make um, in the way you approach technology? You know, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm sort of one. Well, what they called me a geriatric, a geriatric. <laughs> what am I? A, geri a geriatric millennial. <laughs> I don't think part of the privilege of being a geriatric millennial. <laughs> not that I approve of the use of the term, even if it amuses my my team. Um, is that I? I'm very comfortable with technology it's not an alien thing I've grown up with you know the interwebs you know playing with phones or whatever but you know it's it's not intimidating to me it's a part of life and it always was even when I was doing law I mean there's some wonderful people doing stuff in legal technology and legal tech and those kinds of things um but at the same time I've had the privilege of having a 
you know, an unconnected life at a time when you're probably your most vulnerable. And I think that's a privilege. So, you know, I wasn't on social media when I was 13. I think I might be slightly different if I was. I was only on social media once it was found. Gabriella, what is a civic tech lab and what does it do? Ah, so my civic tech lab, we're a group of very, it's a very wonderful interdisciplinary team. So we have technologists, we have community workers, we have data wranglers, which is just a term I'd like to use um, because it's a very enjoyable word. Um, and what we do essentially is we build technology, uh, we do trainings, we also do innovation thinking and those kinds of things, but with the fundamental goal of bringing uh, the, the citizen closer to the state. So in other words, there are, I mean, it's, we're not naive about that being necessarily a perfect relationship, which is part of the reason we center information and data so much, because of course it is, it is the ability to lift people up and empower them quite literally. Uh, that is, is data and information at its most transformative. But we're not naive, but basically we do see there are a lot of systems and processes that already exist that could just work better. Um, and it's not ideal and it's not sufficient. And, you know, I know about, you know, the broader socioeconomic challenges that mean full participation is not likely. You know, you can't really get, like we all know, you can't get justice without redistribution, you know, but... Our, we very much work in the space where we're just nudging what we can. Um, and we see some very productive relationships being built. Um, and there are different types of victories you can get in this space. One of the young people who we used to engage in our Codebridge youth, so we do some youth engagement, you know, introducing them to technology and those kinds of things. But, but in the recognition that young people are not a different kind of citizen, that in South Africa, young people are the citizens, and it's interesting to think how much civil political conversation in this country excludes young people unless they're talking about youth as like a project, you know. But civil society is young, you know, civil society is youth. Our political actors are young people, you know. Um, and one of our, the participants in our sort of Cobra Juice program is now being appointed to his ward council. You know, there's a kinds of things which aren't seen as a result of technology, but kind of are, like in the sense that they, it's introducing people to innovation and to knowing they deserve more and to knowing they can do more. It's that activity that's really, really profoundly changing, I think, and can be positive, but obviously idealistic. On a practical level, could you give an example of a program that you're doing and how you use technology to actually um, do civic activism? Sure. Uh, we've got a couple. Um, so one of the things we've done is there was, we built um, the National Treasury's open data portal, open budget data portal, um, in partnership with civil society and probably one of the more exciting collaborative efforts between civil society, government department to actually build a thing. Um, and so it's the, all the budget data goes on there, including some really interesting <laughs> things um, because National Treasury is quite, you know, a, a leader in the transparency department in that sense on an open data. 
Um, we do these co-bridge youths, uh, which are, are kind of youth hubs where we engage them in civic education, um, but also digital training and digital skills training. Um, we've done, for instance, we've built case management software for because we work both with government but also with civil society. Uh, case management software to help law advice officers, you know, to transform their engagement and their practice. I think most justice or legal justice still happens, you know, in law advice offices in this country. And um, so we're very glad to be involved in those kinds of things. We've built, um, we have a sort of flagship tool called WASIMAP, which is a kind of geospatial tool uh, which maps census data and different kinds of point data, which sounds sounds limited, but actually has amazing utility for providing, you know, real context um, to data. And we we have a number of different versions of that. Um, one of them... And, will, an incredible uh, tool for journalists, I know. Um, I'm from oh. my own engaged with it. Yeah, so, so absolutely. So, I mean, these are really fascinating tools and, and they're very practical. How widespread um, um, uh, is the usage though, right? Because I mean, having the tools is one thing, getting citizens to actually use and engage with them might be a more difficult task, right? Yeah. I mean, there are two sides to that. One of them is, you know, we have a sort of um, what we call a kind of our pitch methodology, which, uh, you know, our, our, our short form of social change, which is, you know, inform, empower, activate. And it's that activation part that's always the hardest because it's at that activation part that you get a lot of this kind of structural impediments to social change um, happening for individuals when you're looking at the level of individuals, similarly with institutions, to be honest. And so that's one side of it. But the other side of it is that, you know, you don't always, for a, a lot of what we do, because we see technology, technology is not the goal. You know, we're not a commercial company that wants lots of people to use our stuff. You know, technology is not the goal, it's the implement. And so when you see technology just as kind of more of a mechanism or lever, it changes your idea of what impact is, you know. So... I, some there's certain parts of certain kinds of our tools where I don't care if it only reaches 10 people, those 10 people can do amazing things. I think, for example, we built a tool which can be used by a lot of people, but really has only been used by one person the most. Uh, you're probably familiar with Ray Joseph, uh, the journalist. Um, Ray has been working on the national lotteries story for you know and really been one of the only voices on the national lottery's corruption for a long time and we built him a tool which helped him look at the national lottery's data and and it's open and it's available and yeah he's pretty much the only one who uses it but he really uses it <laughs> you know yeah when we when we talk about access to the internet and the inequalities around that, I mean, um, do you have any specific solutions um, in, in terms of dealing with either inequalities and perhaps making access uh, more available to everyone? I mean, I think there are a lot of components to that kind of problem. So I've done some work previously. I was a senior fellow with Research ICT Africa, who do really, really good work, I think, on um, ICT infrastructure and ICT access. And, you know, they'll have very good conversations with you about Spectrum and all those, you know, all those other iterations of ITC, 
ICT infrastructure, which really impedes the reality of technology. Well, not technology access, internet access here. Um, but I think, yeah, I think, you know, one of the important, most important things for understanding where we fit is to remember that inequality in access, to remember the inequality in access, not just to be about the fact that people don't have frequent access, but what that means for how they use it when they do access it. Because, you know, there's all this language of digital dividends and stuff like that. But if you're not familiar with technology, if you are not comfortable with technology, you are much more subject to the risks of that technology. Um, but you're also much less able to get the digital dividends that arise by knowing how to use it. So you're more likely to be a passive consumer of you know, content on your phone, right? If you don't really know how to use it, you're not going to be using that phone to create your own, you know, local business or whatever, like, you know, all those knock-on effects that are meant to happen when people get more and more access. The quality of access matters and the frequency of access um, matters as well. Um, and at the same time, building capacities so that as that, you know, access increases, you can leverage it. You know, otherwise we're going to just continue to be consumers of Western products and knowledge and language and, you know, all our data will be extracted and used by other people, you know. So it really depends a lot on fostering local capacity and local uh, local joy in, in in the digital space. No, absolutely. And when you think of all the women, um, 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 whether they're in business, whether they're in um, um, civil society, even if they're, whether they're in government, who who aren't actually exposed to to these the potential of the yeah. internet and don't have the language or the understanding of what the internet can do. I mean, we're looking at missed business opportunities. We're looking at um, advocacy, um, right, that, that is weakened because we're not able to kind of um, be able to do all of these things. Um, from your own experience as someone engaging with technology and beginning to understand the regulatory framework of technology and the potential for technology, what do you think um, um, we can do um, um, to become more comfortable with it um, and then to begin to engage with it and actually reap some of its rewards, the, yeah. this dividend that we so often talk about? Yeah. I mean, I, it, you know, it's, it sounds silly, but a lot of it is in that kind of personal level, being able to embrace change and embrace discomfort. And I think often it's, also these classical impediments to your own personal progress that uh, inhibit you from, you know, enjoying technical progress. Like if I think about my team, so I'm comfortable with technology. I'm comfortable with the language of technology, but I can't code. 90% of the time when my technical team are talking to me, I have no idea what they're talking about. And I'm perfectly comfortable with that because you know, we all come with different skills and understanding that technology is a small part of what can, you know, or not a small part, but a simple part of what creates goodness and what creates a healthy space and what creates change. Um, you know, it's I think a first step to that, you know, understanding that there are different people with different skills and that it's just about being more receptive to these things than anything else. Maybe that's a bit twee, but, uh, you know, I do think, 
I don't believe that external can change can happen without the internal change happening first. So I often think it's these small tweaks, you know, these personal tweaks and, and personal forms of self-development that help, you know, these kinds of bigger technical things. Gabriella, when you look at what happened during COVID, right, I mean, we had an acceleration online um, uh, across the globe. I mean, I was reading a statistic um, um, earlier this week that last year, 2021, we had 424 million people um, 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 sign up, um, new signups on on social media platforms. Um, and, And we've certainly seen 2020, 2021, we've seen a huge increase in online news audiences in 2020 and a little bit of a dip in 2021, but it's still higher than pre-pandemic. Yet the challenge is is that we've got large numbers of rural South Africans, large numbers of rural Africans who are still not connected. And when they are connected, the the access is limited. Um, um, And as you said earlier on, right, the ability to use that access is even more limited. Um, Are you concerned that that the gap might widen or are you hopeful that we're actually doing things in order to to bring access to, to all Africans? Yeah, I mean, I'm concerned that the gap will widen and, and I'm hopeful that it won't. <laughs> I, you know, I think, and that is what's really important about driving an African narrative on both the development of technology, but digital access, um, digital policy. Part of the reason that we need an African voice on this is to constantly remind people of what digital inequality looks like because it's fundamentally our digital landscape and across indicators. So. You, who can access the internet, who can afford a phone, do you know what I mean, how, what they do when they're online. And like I said, it increases the risks, right, as well. So you get more and more people online, but in a kind of nature that makes them more vulnerable. Um, So I think that needs to fundamentally be the centering narrative of the African digital experience, you know. Um, And, you know, but at the same time, I feel like when I see what people do in Kenya, when I see what people do, my team do, <laughs> um, I there is something about the way that, you know, this continent creates for social impact that is so fundamentally part of who we are. I think a lot of that is cultural and spiritual and, you know, but... That I really do believe that if we can foster more local innovation, it's far more likely to be the kind of technology that does good than does harm. Um, because I see it in how we develop. So maybe that might be a little bit of naivety, some people, you know, uh, Afro-optimism at its, at, its, <laughs> at its most. But I feel like that's what I see, you know. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, though, right, I mean, even as we're getting um, 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 broader access across the continent, you're also seeing that a lot of African governments are, are using internet shutdowns as a way to restrict that access, are using taxes on, um, on, on, on social media um, um, as a way to kind of restrict that access. Um, as someone who's worked within a regulatory framework, do you think that we're doing enough to make sure that there's domestication of, of global of implementation of local um, global laws and, and, and actually to translate that into an interaction on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a very 
And again, that is because technology doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's created by people. It should be created for people. Often it isn't. I think the more you do that, the better it becomes. Mm -hmm. But it is not in a political vacuum either. It is very fundamentally politicized. Um, and it's politicized both by traditional political uh, forces as well as economic political forces. I think on the continent, it's interesting because you can see those two intentions sometimes a lot more. And then actually in other countries, you know, the political and the economic tends to be the same thing. Um, but I do think there's like a tension um, sometimes, like particularly at the level of policy. You know, sometimes this strong nationalist agenda, which tends to focus on very centered kinds of forms of power, often, you know, at least with a semi-interest in social distribution, but probably more so consolidation of power, just is a conflict with, you know, the digital and internet's instinct to diversify, you know, and divert. And I'm not, again, I'm not, you know, and I'm no naive internet person, you know, I don't think the internet is the great equalizing force, obviously, but, you know, there is a tendency towards the distribution of information and the democratizing of information and the democratizing of different kinds of power as well that I think often does not align with those kinds of very traditional centralized nationalists, nationalist forms of power, you know, political power. I think that's a fundamental tension that we see frequently. And I don't, I, sometimes I, it's almost like knee-jerk. I don't necessarily even think it's intentional. Often it is intentional too. I mean, you know, mm -mm. what happens in Uganda and things like that, you know, those, those are intentional. But I, I think those, but, you know, there's a lot of good work being done. So the African Union are just adopting this data policy uh, framework. Mm -hmm. I was quite involved in writing the data government sections on that. And I think there are a lot of things in there that, you know, I think are groundbreaking compared to, to a lot of other regions or whatever. And comes from, you know, our region's much more ready acceptance of socioeconomic rights and collective rights and collectivism that isn't a feature of other, not just other legal jurisdictions, but other ways of thinking, normative ways of thinking. So I see some hope at those policy levels. Gabrielle, tell me, what are you working on this year? I mean, what can we expect from, um, from your organization this year? Oh, so many fun things. We've been doing yeah. a lot of, <laughs> so many things. Um, we've been doing a lot of stuff on, uh, open procurement and public procurement. So we'll continue working with a whole lot of different partners in that area, you know, making procurement data, open COVID procurement data, but increasingly different forms of procurement, data, procurement data, which I love as a focus for domestic work, given, you know, what, what a fundamental issue that has been in terms of the distribution of power here. So I love that work. Um, you know, we will continue to do uh, sort of, uh, we do a lot of stuff at local government, which mm -hmm. I should actually speak about because I really, really enjoy it. Um, you know, often, you know, engagement and national level government is, it comes with its restrictions, you know, uh, very formalized, it's a slow moving entity and 
there is something very special about working at local government level and how close people are to politics mm -hmm. there and how fundamental change can create, you know, um, um, there's a lot less interference and mm -hmm. a lot less curtsying, you know, so we really enjoy local government work. Um, mm -hmm. And I really do think it in South Africa, because of its, you know, particular history and political structures, I think it's a profound opportunity for creating impact. Yeah. Gabriella, we're almost at the end of our time, but I wanted to ask you before we, we, we end off, you know, if, 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 if people or organizations wanted to kind of um, 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 dip their toes, so to speak, in this civic technological space, what are the kind of advice that you would give them? In the civic space? Um, yeah, just be ready to listen to outliers and outcasts, all those odd people who make you uncomfortable. Those are the fun people to listen to, because even if they don't send you in a, the right direction, they challenge you. And that's exciting, you know. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, you know, the most important thing about understanding technology is it only, well, to me and to my team, it only matters so far as it's doing something for people. I mean, mm. that, that's what matters. So I think if you have empathy and you have a human-centered vision, that's far more important than mm. anything else. And one of the greatest things that technology can offer you is just that innovation thinking is really powerful to, mm. to not be stuck on a problem, to not or stuck in an approach, or say a fund has given you money to do this one thing, you know, because those, those kinds of restrictions, those that we put in place for ourselves are what prevent change. And I think if the most powerful thing technology offers us is a curiosity and a creativity and thinking uh, and approach um, that I think we can use to solve a lot more complex problems and, you know, how to get your TikTok video uh, online. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you've certainly stimulated a lot of thought about what we should be doing, could be doing um, and with technology. And I feel like there's just so much more that we could be discussing um, um, on the topic um, and, and to be able to dig deeper. I want to say thank you very much, um, I'm, I'm Gabriella um, Rosano, um, for just really giving of your time and your expertise to speak to us about this today. Um, um, we've come to the end of today's podcast episode. Um, um, thank you for listening to us. Remember to rate the podcast on your favorite platform and to share with other leaders and then to join us the next time as we continue to explore um, the technology ecosystem and the leadership challenges and opportunities for those present. Mm -hmm.